Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is a special message from Todd Hicksonball, Children's Ministry Director here at Community Church on Hosea. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Todd. So, for real, this is children's guy. So, we're going to have some fun. He's preaching on something called Sinners in the Hands of a Merciful God. That sounds great. This is going to be a blast. And so we're going to be in the book of Hosea today. So for those of you who have a Bible with you, great. Go to the Old Testament, take a right, and you're going to find Hosea if you keep turning. Um, It's going to be right after, you know, all that other stuff. If you have an app, just click it and go to Hosea and click that. We're going to be in the first chapter. We're going to be in the first chapter for the majority of the time. We're going to wander a little bit into chapter three, skip over two, unless you really want to worship today, then we could get into like how God's actually going to tear it. We're not going to do that. And so um, that's where we're going to be today in the, in the book of Hosea. So let's read together. Not really read together. I'll read to you. Verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom. Wow, what is this? That's crazy. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This is off to a great start. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. This is really a positive passage. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. He really needs, God needs to get on the app that is like all the baby names. Like, this is not good. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, his name's gonna be Ben. Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel positive passage. So now let's do the next logical thing, which is to talk about history. So one of the things that I think about a lot is history. I love history. As a matter of fact, last year, some of you first service didn't know what this was. Some of you might be familiar that there was this TikTok challenge and wives and girlfriends and and women in general were asking men all over the place, how often do we think about the Roman empire? Secret time. I think about it every day. Many times a day. I love it. And so we're going to walk through some history because one of my favorite things to think about is what would have happened if this hadn't happened and instead this happened. And so we're going to think about betrayal this morning. Oh, this is wonderful. And the first person that I think of when I think about betrayal is Ephialtes. Isn't that who you think about? 
That is. Now, who is this guy? So if you have watched the movie The 300, you know a little bit about this story. The 300 took some liberties on the story. So Ephialtes was a Greek soldier, probably a politician at some point in his life, who felt disenfranchised from the rest of Greece. And this is a time when the Greek city-states are facing off against this massive empire called the Persians. Dun, dun, dun. And the Persians have this king named King Xerxes. And he's conquered every country that's ever existed, yada, 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 all this stuff, okay? And in the movie, we see these 300 Spartans go up against a kajillion of these Persian people. There was actually about 300 Spartan warriors, about 1,000 Boeotian warriors who were in a neighboring city-state and about a couple hundred of the Greek helots, which were basically slaves who had been trained as soldiers. So the odds were better. It was about 1,500 versus approximately 90,000. Still not great numbers. But here's the deal. They had one objective. They were supposed to hold the pass called... Anybody know it? Thermopylae. Yeah. Now, today, if you go to the place where this battle took place, the pass is about a mile wide, okay? But that's just because we've had a lot of silt erosion and things happen. At the time of this great battle, it was actually the, the same width as if you took two football fields and just put them end to end, right? So it was much shorter distance. And these soldiers, they were so brave, and they, they go out to the front and day the first day happens and and the persians can't break through and the spartan warriors are the tip of the spear and they're fighting and they're just kicking butt and it's awesome and the second day happens and still they're like yeah and they're killing people it's awesome because nobody can penetrate the shield wall until this guy named ephialtes comes out and what ephialtes decides is hey you know what i'm kind of mad at these greek people I'm kind of mad at the things that they've done to me and, and whatever. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell out this secret path that's going to take the Persians behind where the Greek soldiers are for about, in modern day money, $10,000. And it happens. He does that. And what ends up occurring is the Persians get behind them. King Leonidas, who is the king of the Spartans, finds out. And he prepares the people. And actually, he sends off some of the soldiers who were there with him. So he actually lessens his number to be able to get the soldiers into central Greece where they can warn people so that when the Persians come through, because by the way, the Persians were going to come through, that he would be able to give them a fair warning. Now, the moral of the story is, is that, you know, there's this large host and there's these few people and they can fight. And, you know, the, the small guy can stand a chance. They all died. They all died. But they actually save, were able to save the rest of Greece because they delayed them long, just long enough. Just long enough. Now, Fialtes gets killed later by assassins, and it's all things are work out in the end. They kick the Persians out, and it's great. Another person who I like to think about in history... This is what I call interns whenever they don't drink Starbucks. You're allowed to laugh. First service laughed at this. Benedict Arnold. That's right. Benedict Arnold. You see, 
Benedict Arnold, at the time, during the colonies, there was a real debate. Who is worse? This is a real debate during Revolutionary War times. Who is worse, Benedict Arnold or King George? That was a real debate. Who's worse? Benedict Arnold, as we know, was a loyalist, and he was displeased that the Americans were doing this, and so he was one of George Washington's head people. He betrays them, and yada, yada, and it's all bad. He betrayed the Americans. How about this guy? E2 Brute, anybody? This is not the Buckeye guy, all right? His first service was getting confused. It's not the Buckeye dude. This is Marcus something something Brutus. And better known as Brutus, this guy was like good friends with Julius Caesar. He's one of his advisors. And Julius Caesar had taken everything over and was doing all this great stuff. And he was a dictator, became a dictator. And Brutus had advised him and helped him get into this position. It was this great betrayal because he actually leads them to be able to assassinate Julius Caesar. That's not good enough for you? All right, fine. Judas Iscariot, how about this guy? All right, we all know we're going to celebrate this story in a little bit. Uh, this guy named Judas Iscariot, for those of you who don't know, was one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. And he ends up being such a stand-up person. He spends three years with Jesus and one day decides, hey, I don't think that, I think this guy tricked me. He didn't really tell me what his real intentions were after three years when I was the person who was holding the strings of the purse for the group. And here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, bro make him get killed. I'm going to celebrate that in a little bit, Easter and all that stuff. Betrayal. Death. History. Betrayal is all over, all over history. It's all over the Bible. It's all over in our world. Many of you right now can think of a time when you have been betrayed. But Todd, what does this have to do with Hosea? Great, so let's talk a little bit more about history. Let's talk about the context that Hosea finds himself in when he's writing. So this is a time period from about 770 BC until about 720-ish BC when he's writing, okay? This is when he's alive, it's when he's writing. And if you do math and know a little bit about David and Solomon, it's been about 200 years since the glory days, the golden age of Israel. If you've read the back part of the Bible, you would know that at some point, David and Solomon die. Solomon's kid, like, you know, takes over. And at that point, things kind of go south. So for about 200 years, we've had bad kings and good kings, but mostly bad kings. And it gets to the point where the entire nation of Israel breaks apart. And we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So there's the top 10 tribes, they go and form a nation called Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And Judah and Benjamin kind of join forces huzzah, and they form Judah in the south. Now, during this time period in the 700s BC, we know that Israel actually was having sort of a renaissance. See, they had begun to become um, competent again on the national geopolitical stage. They began to be able to produce some of their own goods and they began to have money flowing and all was well. They had military might again. They were able to defend themselves. They had had some advances in weaponry and they had done all these great things. And things in life were good. Problem. They had to sell their soul to do it. 
And so when the prophet Isaiah is writing, he primarily is writing to the northern kingdom of Israel. Though he does talk about Judah, most of what he is saying is directly to the kingdom of Israel. And that's where we're going to get into our time today. You see, Israel had decided that they were going to trust in the power of their political alliances and in the power of their industry rather than trust in God. And so what they did was they went around and there were several kings that did this, King Uzziah, King Jehu, all these different people. And, and they began to talk to people and they realized, hey, there's the big bad Assyrians that have kind of risen up and now they are the new kid on the block that's powerful enough to be able to wipe us out. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look around, find who the other superpowers are and make some alliances with them. But if you read in the book of Isaiah, if you read in the book of Jeremiah, if you read in all these other places, you will see over and over and over again, God using these prophets to say, no, Israel, don't do that. Trust in me, I will help you. By the way, I'm not reading your mail. I just know this is how humans have behaved for a long time because Israel was doing the same thing and you and I struggle in the same way. It was like, God, I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but this seems like a better way. This feels better. This feels like I can control it. And that's exactly what happens. So they actually make an alliance with the nation of Egypt. Irony should not be lost on the fact that the Israelites made an alliance with Egypt. You know, the people who had enslaved them, that's a whole other thing. So they make this alliance and like, God's going, what are you doing? And Egypt had all this amazing technology with how they had revolutionized chariots and weapons and all of these things. And Israel just copies them. And they make some alliances that are pretty strategic with some other nations. And after that time, what ends up happening is their economy gets boosted back up. We see them being able to be strong again on the political stage, something they hadn't had in 200 years what did it cost them? I'll tell you what it cost them. In order to have these alliances, there were certain things that Pharaoh wanted. You see, Pharaoh wanted to have all gods worshiped in any place that they had alliances with. And so this weird thing happened where it was like, okay, I'm like, all right, you know, you want to, you want to worship these gods? That's fine, but I won't. And then a generation passes and a generation passes and a generation passes. And all of a sudden we start mixing Egyptian religion with Yahwism. And then we start making an alliance over here. And then we take their religious practices. And all of a sudden what we have is this weird mixed up thing that kind of sounds like stuff that God said, but it's really just this big religious blob. And that's basically what their morality was. It was a religious blob. The technical term is called syncretism. Right, when you sync up multiple things, and particularly religion, it creates this, this weird religious thing, and it was disgusting to God. You see, they were worshiping the Baals in temples and places of worship meant for God. The sacrifices that God had instructed them to do in the Old Testament, they had replaced with temple prostitute worship. I don't know it's not like anything God told them to do. But it was a small price to pay, right? For all this other stuff, let's learn a little bit about what ended up happening. So I like to leave myself notes when I read the Bible. 
And when I first started working on this, the first thing that happened is after I got done reading the, the whole passage that we're talking about today, is I wrote, that sounds weird. And maybe whenever I was reading it, that was your reaction too. So let's read this together. Hosea chapter one, verses two and three. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take your, to yourself a wife of Ordom. That's weird. And have children of Ordom. That's weird. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Weird. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of the Bliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So the question that I have to ask myself and that maybe you've asked yourself while you're sitting here is, would God do that? Like God told him to marry a prostitute? Would God ask us to do something hard? It's a better way of asking that question. If you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, you know that the answer to that is yes. So I want you to set aside this whole thing of her being a prostitute and think about it as he's asking him to do something really difficult. Because God asks us to do hard things all the time. And what we're going to see over the next few verses is how God actually uses difficult things, even sometimes things he asks us to do, to grow us, but also to expand his kingdom. We're going to talk about how names mean a lot in this passage. Anytime, by the way, that you're reading prophets, I need you to know that anytime that they write a name down, it's very important. You should circle it and do a quick word study on what the name means. Let me show you. I'm going to break one of Pastor Mike's rules in which he never uses Hebrew and never teaches about Hebrew. Okay? Forgive me. Bear with me. I promise it's going to be awesome. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. What the heck is Jezreel? Well, the name actually means one who sows or he who sows. However, two things that happen really odd. Back in this other passage, did, he, did she bear him a boy or a girl? Boy, right? At the very end, it says a son. So there's this thing in Hebrew where there's gendered, it's a gendered language, that's not how English works, right? That's not how English works. But in Hebrew, the ending of a word tells you if it's a male word, if it's a female word, or sometimes there's these weird, like, no gender words, okay? Now, if you're naming a boy, Todd, it would be a gendered word that had a male ending. God tells him to name this boy a female name. Why would God do that? That's very strange. That's very strange. And what does Jezreel mean? It means she sows. Chaos. Destruction. It could also mean sows plants. Sows crops. But the word specifically is lahime, lahime which means, it's the same word that the, the writer in Proverbs uses to explain somebody who's sowing their own destruction. Very interesting, right? Hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to it. But then he was going after to tell us about the name for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. So Jezreel's dead. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That's not nice, God. That's not nice. Don't do that. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So as Jezreel, this 
boy who's named a girl name, but also is like sowing destruction is basically going to do this until they like implode on themselves. Huh? I've done that before. Have you? I've done that. I have thought I was doing the right thing and imploded on myself. I've done things, said things, and it didn't work great. And then all of a sudden I'm praying and looking at God like, bro, like, what was that? And he's like, I told you not to eat the extra spicy burrito, man. Like you did this to yourself. Insert extra spicy burrito for like whatever the thing in your life that you've ever done that's imploded. Now, I want you to notice something because there's about to become like this call and response thing where God curses something and then God like says, no, it's well, I'm going to bless this over here. So in verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy for I will no have, I will no have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God, but I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. So there's this thing over here that's bad and he's going to not have mercy for it. That's Israel. And there's this thing over here that's good. And that's Judah. And he will have mercy for it. Okay. All right. I'm following. I got it. So there's, promises that God's making. Hey, there's things that I'm going to curse. There's things I'm going to bless. Got it. Let's look at what happens next. Eight, by the way, are you, I'm hoping that you're appreciating my notes on the side. These are my real time notes that occurred in Starbucks. All right. I really thought these things and I really wrote them on pieces of paper just for you. Truth hurts. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people for you are not my people. And I am not your God. That's really harsh. Not my people. So God has people that aren't his people. That sounds ominous. Truth hurts. But then there's this blessing that comes right after it. That's so beautiful. Yet the number of the children of Israel, he doesn't say Judah. He says Israel. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Remember the curses. What did God do? He cursed people. He said, there's no mercy. You are not my people. Jezreel, which is his weird name, all this stuff. What is he saying? He says, you are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. So now we've got Israel, we've got Judah. They're all sinners and they're all together. And God's going to take all the curses and turn them to blessings. You may go home. I'm just kidding. We have this weird thing happening, but then he does this and I'm sitting in Starbucks. All right. And I got friends who are like near me, like it's baristas taking their, their, their 10 right? And I go, what the heck is this? They're like, what? And I'm like, you wouldn't understand. But actually, let me tell you. And so he ends this passage and he says, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So he's going to turn all this stuff over and Curses will become blessings, and all of a sudden we're going to heal this whole thing under one head. I wonder who that could be. 
Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Now, let's pause for a second. You see, one of the first, um, one of the first rules that like you learn on your first day of Bible college, right? First day of Bible college, you go in and, and your professor goes, listen, when you're interpreting the Bible, there's one big rule. I'm like, Jesus loves me this side. And he's like, no, no, you idiot. No, who are these people giving me? The one rule, the first rule on the first day is that whatever you interpret the Bible to be, it has to be applicable first to the people who it was written to. And second, it has to be applicable to us today. Now, I don't know about you, but that's some gobbledygook there. That, that, if I'm just reading that, I'm, and you get to the devotional, it's like day 157, and it's like this first chapter, I'm going, Lord, what kind of a day are you telling me I'm going to have? What day am I going to have? I'm going to have a day with boredom, and ooh, this is not good. But here's what it, here's what this all means. Here's what this all is pointing to, right? It's pointing towards this, that there is behavior and there are things in this world that God calls good. And he blesses those things. There are conversely things in this world that God calls bad. And he curses those things. But at the end of all things, God has built something that's going to bring both together and give them the opportunity to unite under one head. I would venture to call that head Jesus. Just me. It's a stretch. And that those things will be all healed and the land will be healed. And it actually says, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. All things will be turned. And actually it's interesting because the word Jezreel, he turns back into a male, um, into a male ending. And it's fascinating because the male ending rhymes with an interesting word that some of you may have heard before. Chesed, meaning God's loving kindness. And it's all through Jesus. Great, Todd. That's awesome. So there's bad people and I should not like those people. And there are good people and I should uh, not like those people. Dude, I could have watched like any comic book movie and known that that was true. Thank you for making me come to church today to know that. I appreciate you. You're right. I spent a lot of hours just to tell you that. Not true. So, you know, I'm in Starbucks just pondering my life and writing and thinking and praying. And I have this brilliant idea. That was great. You're allowed to sometimes admit you had a great idea. And I said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask my barista friends what they think of religious people and see what their answers are. You use good people. I'm going to ask them what they think about religious people. And, and boy, did they give me some answers. Now, first off, you're going, well, Todd, I'm not a religious person. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Great, bro. I'm glad. I'm glad. Let me tell you what they said about you. The way of the religious person. Here's what they said. Most religious people, when they think of the word religious people, they say they're oversaved, underserving, overprayed, underdoing, over-sanctified, hard or calloused, pharisaical, meaning they're better than us, uncaring and unloving, with a watered-down faith with no root, 
ow, that hurt me. That's painful. So I said, okay, all right, all right, right. I use the word religious person, okay? Like I use the word religious person. But surely when I change it to an evangelical or a born again Christian, the answer's gonna change. Like they're gonna like open it up and the birds are gonna start chirping and Jesus is gonna send the spirit down out of the sky and gonna zap them. And they're gonna, just gonna be like, no, that's not true at all. I actually think that three of the five people that I asked said that they would not change their answers at all. The other two told me that they would add a few things. Bigoted. They would add that they're hateful. They would add that they're out of touch with reality. And on top of all of those lovely things, they're not people they would spend time with. That's uncomfortable. Now, baristas at Starbucks, let's talk about them. So at my Starbucks, there is a Bible study that meets there every single week. Lovely group of ladies. I talk to them all the time. Sometimes they buy me drinks, which is okay because I am always accepting. Free ad, if ever you wanna buy me a Starbucks drink, I will not say no. Now, I go to them and I say, okay, all right, to be fair, we gotta even this out a bit. We gotta woosah this thing, all right? Let's do this. So. I asked him, I said, all right, if I tell you the phrase unbeliever or just somebody who doesn't believe in God, right? What are the things that you would, that what are like, what pops into your head? What would you believe about these people? Worldly. Jeez, I hope they are. I don't believe in Jesus. Does what is right in their own eyes. All right, you're being a little on the nose. Belligerent. Ooh no moral compass, drifting through life. And I didn't put this one on here because I didn't want to offend anybody. And I was, I was reminded of it after first service. Democrat was what somebody said. There's some pacing. That's the list. And so I went, all right, so we have the good people. Are they good people? And we have the bad people. Are they bad people? And so it just gets all weird and crossed. And I'm like, so yeah, if I go to church every week, I probably think that this group are the good people and this group are the bad people. But what if I'm that person? Then I think this group is the bad person and that group is the good person. And I probably have a radically different list than that. So who's good and who's bad? It gets very confusing. Very, very confusing. You see, the problem is not that people aren't following what God says. Because if I don't give you an iPhone or a roadmap and I tell you to drive somewhere you've never been before, why would you be able to get there? Duh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get there. Matter of fact, you'd wander around aimlessly. You wouldn't know how to go where you're supposed to go. And pretty soon you'd be sitting in Starbucks talking to barista. I'm just kidding. You would not do that. 
you would get to where you needed to go. But it makes perfect sense that these people have no idea where they're going. But, but Todd, what about the Christians, right? Like what, about the, what about the born again people? What about the religious people? What about, what about the evangelicals? What about those people? Well, let me talk about those people for a second. I know none of you were those people, by the way, none of you. But let me tell you about this. So if you go to five Bible, by the way, I'm not hating on everybody in this room. I'm just describing a mystery person. You go to five Bible studies a week and two prayer meetings. That's seven days during the week. And that only covers to your Wednesday. After that, you do personal Bible study at home and personal prayer meetings. And nobody that you hang out with is anything different than exactly who you are. And you go to lunch with the people who are like you and you go to work and the people who you hang out with are like you and the people who you don't hang out with are not like you. And you put yourself in this insulated bubble. Do you think that you know who these people, these people on the other side are? Do you think that you're less likely to be able to understand them or more likely? The obvious answer is I'm less likely to know them, but so many people behave this way. I like studies. They're fun for me. There's a study that came out a couple years ago that said that the average evangelical Christian says that they spend less than an hour a month talking with somebody who believes differently than they do about politics, about religion, and on top of that, about how relationships in the world works. So what that means, and I'm, by the way, that means, that means talking about those things specifically, right? Not just like hanging out with people because we work with people who might not believe the same as us. So we spend less than an hour on a monthly basis discussing or talking to anybody who thinks differently than us. So why would we know anything about my blue haired friends at Starbucks? Why would we know anything for the blue haired friends at Starbucks? Anything about the Christians? Because guess what? They don't hang out with people like that either. We're all in this echo chamber, right? And we're just blah, blah, blah. We're just doing this thing. It's awesome, right? And we can believe that there are bad people and we can believe that there are good people and we can believe that we're the good people. We are always the good people in the story. We're never the bad people. It's confusing. I listen every day to a podcast that's on the far left and I listen every day to a podcast that's on the far right. Why do I do that? Not because I'm wanting to torture myself, but because I think that there are people who are on the far right that have some interesting ideas. And I think there are people on the far left who have some interesting ideas. And I like to see how they cross pollinate because what's probably happening is in the middle, an interesting thing is happening. That's probably closer to the truth. Huh? So if there's this and there's that in terms of good people and bad people, and God sees good people and he sees bad people question. What's the middle? What's the part that's true about God? You see, we get to choose that. And the choice that we get to make is actually the character that God wants for us to have. You see, what if we pretended that the people who are over here and the people that are over here are all children of God, somebody who God created, 
somebody that God thought up, somebody that God actually thought through what the characteristics this person was going to have, the talents that they were going to have, all of their abilities and all these things. What if we thought that that person was actually conceived in God's mind and entered into the world? Be an interesting concept. But what if we go further? What if we say, hey, you know what? Um, People who I disagree with, cool, I disagree with you, but what if I tried to begin to think through how to have conversations with them? Ooh, conversations, scary. I think it would begin to bring unity to things. And doesn't Jesus do this whole thing in the book of John where he's like, you know, you need to be unified and all this stuff. I let people like Pastor Joe talk about that because like Joe likes to get spiritual. And like in John, he says this and it's like, you need the church and you be unified and the greatest thing you can have is love and like blah. And all this stuff, he does this unity thing. And it's like, what if we did that with this and we began to have conversations, not because I want to compromise on what I believe God's telling me and teaching me, but because I wanted to understand why somebody who is so far different than me thinks and believes the way that they do. Unity would begin to happen. What if we actually also began to like, I don't know, Think of Jesus as the head of the church instead of this person that we prayed to one time, this weird prayer. And we're like, God, I trust you and believe you and love you and like, don't send me to hell. What if we actually believe that he was the head of the church and that he loved us and that he died so that you and I don't have to spend forever separated from him because he wanted something better for us. He wanted us to not be separated from the father. He wanted us to be able to enter into the throne room of heaven, be able to stand there fully justified as a child of God. And what if we just believed that that was a thing? Not only would it change how we think of God, it would change how we think of other people because all of these other people have the opportunity to do the same thing. And what if we actually like were scripture fed? What if we actually read the Bible? I gave you this last time I preached. Um, 70% of evangelicals who say that they are a Bible-believing, Bible-reading Christian read their Bible for less than 10 minutes a week. What if we actually read the Bible? And not just the Jesus parts. What if we read the whole thing? What if we read like, all of it and like we we spent time thinking through the whole part about like the church and the way the church is constructed and how god wants to use the church through the great commission to be able to tell everybody not just my saved friends at, at lunch but everybody about who god is and even the ones who get away pastor mike spent two weeks talking about how we forgive people and even if they don't want to be forgiven like the sheep and oh no we have to go searching for that sheep What if we pretended that scripture actually are the words of God that contain the words of life to help us to live better? We would radically change how we think about people. We would radically change how we think about God and we would radically change how we think about ourselves. And then what if we just like bathed the whole thing in prayer? Like what if we just did all that other stuff and then we said, hey, you know what? I am committing to praying not just for myself so that I win my betting line on the Super Bowl tonight. Hey now, I know some of you, I'm not gonna go there. What if I just committed to praying and I bathed the whole thing in prayer and I lifted people up? How would that impact things? 
It'd be radically different, and it would be a lot more like what God wants us to do. Now, church, I have bad news for you. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot of things. And I'm sitting outside this week when the nice weather was happening, you know, I'm sitting outside at Starbucks because I'm a psycho. And I'm sitting outside and I'm going, all right, Todd, you got to come up with what the other side to this is because you're going to have people that say, what about the other side? What do they have to do? You're right. There's something they have to do. You know what they have to do? Believe in Jesus. How are you supposed to hold somebody accountable to something that they don't even believe in? My friends at Starbucks, they come to me with cockamamie weird ideas. Todd, like, in the Bible, doesn't it say that you have to kill gay people? But like, that's what like churches think of me, right? Well, that's interesting. You know what though, bro? Like, back up for a second. You had people in your church in December who were invited here to be part of Stevie Glemo's choir group that preached and the parents wouldn't leave the children alone in the church because they were scared that people were going to touch their kids inappropriately that happened in december that's how people think of the church todd like what about what about all their sin oh yeah you don't sin (laughs) you're right all that yucky stuff but they sin and they do all these things. I know they do. They don't know any better. Teach them, show them, help them, but not in a weird way. Jesus didn't do that to you. He still doesn't do that to you. And he doesn't do that to me. I'm as messed up as everybody. Every time when I sin, when I fall short. It's the same thing that we talked about in the passage in Hosea, where God has blessings and curses and blessings and curses. Let's jump to the end at, ver- at chapter three. I don't even have this, the scripture up here, but I wanted to show you this. So there's this back and forth all through chapter one and two, where Hosea's wife goes out, cheats on him and comes back and has more kids and does this. And it happens over and over and over and blessings and curses and blessings and curses. You know, God says in chapter three, turn to chapter three, if you have a Bible, turn to chapter three. What he says is God goes, get rid of that woman. That's not what he says. He says, go and take Gomer. Take her back into your house and love her. And then there's this whole thing he goes on and says, and this is how I view Israel as a spouse that cheated on me, that hurt me, I'm going to take her back in. That's Israel. We are now talking about the church. God has done this for you, though some of us may have forgotten it. That though we have sinned and the wages of sin is death, he who had no sin became sin and took upon the sins of the world so that we could be justified in the eyes of God. The entire step for somebody who is not a Christian is just believing and accepting that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what he said he was going to do. If we add more to that, 
we become Judaizers, we become Pharisees. You can use whatever word you want. That's what you become. Now, what's the goal? Well, Todd, we gotta, we do have to do things. You're right. We definitely do. We need to evangelize. We need to pray. We need to love them. We need to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We need to do all of those things. That's the stuff that we need to do. You would not want to be held to the same standards that you hold these people to. I forgot to say this first service, but it's true. After I asked these weird questions to the baristas, they wanted to know, they were like, Todd, like, what are you asking these questions for? It's really weird. Like you're weird. We know, but like, that's weird. I was like, well, you know, that thing that I do that we like try to not talk about on the weekends and like, you kind of look at me side eye about and pretend that I don't do it. And they're like, yeah. And he said, well, there's like a couple hundred of my closest friends that are like going to come in a room. And most of them like believe in this whole thing about God and all that stuff. And I'm going to tell them these things and talk to them about some stuff. And they were like, that's interesting. And one young man stopped me and he said, can you tell him something for me? I'm going to try to say this without crying. He said, you know, can you, can you tell him that I'm not trying to be bad? Nobody told me and no one's helped me. And I don't really know what I'm doing. What if we believed that more people were like him than like the bad people that we were thinking of in that passage in Hosea? How would our church be different? How would you be different? How would your faith be different? I think it'd be radical. You see what we sow for evil, God uses for good. And over and over and over and over again, we see in the book of Hosea, God having something that evil happens in Hosea's life between him and his wife, and he uses it for good. And he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to use this. And it's all going to turn out to be able to show Israel through the pain you've suffered through Hosea. You're going to use it for good. And he does that in your life. And he does that in my life. Because what we sow for evil, God uses for good. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.